we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classical Immigration Law Partners. Hello and welcome. My name is Dev Patel and I'm an associate here at Classical Immigration Law Partners. This is our first episode in a three-part series on the H-1B visa program, which we do a lot of here, especially this time of year, as we prepare for what is known as cap season. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the H-1B visa is a non-immigrant visa that allows U.S. employers to hire foreign nationals in specialty occupations. With me today, I have two partners here at Glasgow, Bill Stock and Michelle Madeira. Welcome. Bill has been practicing immigration law for more than 20 years and was the former president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Michelle has particular experience in business immigration law for large corporations with a high volume of immigration matters. Thank you both for joining me today to talk about recent trends that are affecting H-1B visas. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, in 2017, USCIS implemented the executive order by American Hire American. Due to this, there were significant changes to the processing of H-1B cap cases filed in April 2017. What are some of the biggest trends that you noticed in 2017? Yeah. In 2017, we saw a large increase in the number of requests for evidence issued by USCIS on what would normally be considered a straightforward H-1B case. Um, H-1Bs are for professional workers on, in the definition of, who meet the definition of specialty occupation, meaning that the job requires a degree in a specific field that's related to the job that they would be doing. Um, these types of cases have been questioned as to how they define, as to how they meet the specialty occupation requirement. So we're seeing um, this great increase in, you know, RFEs for network engineers, um, marketing professionals, financial analysts, and lots of other job categories that may not have been questioned in prior years. Currently, the RFE rate has gone up to um, almost, I believe, 45%. It kind of is unprecedented. Now, a lot of people wonder what changed when the new administration came in. And the way I like to explain it is that Uh, The movie didn't change, but the soundtrack did. Uh, So I think adjudicators who previously wanted to take very restrictive interpretations of the various regulations now feel empowered to put those restrictive interpretations into their adjudications. Uh, That means the regulations have stayed the same, but the service officers making these decisions feel much more comfortable in issuing an RFE on what would have been a very routine case uh, just last year. Now, due to this heightened scrutiny, and when it comes to these RFEs, are there particular issues or scenarios that USCIS is consistently attacking? Yeah, so we've seen um, the specialty occupation RFE has been the most common, along with what we refer to as a level one RFE. Um, the specialty occupation RFE really asks for us to prove how each job is a specialty occupation. So we would show that this is the employer standard requirement, that um, this is a standard requirement within the industry, that similar workers also have a degree that's related to what they're doing, all to further show that, um, you know, this job justifies the requirement of a bachelor's degree in a specific field. And I think it's really critical to understand that what they're questioning is how closely a specific degree has to be required. So it's not merely enough to show that most workers in the uh, uh, field have a degree in any field. The question is, do most workers in the field have a degree 
that's in a specific matching field. So, for example, uh, nearly all accountants have a degree in accounting. Uh, when you take that into something like computer fields, a lot of times there's not a one-for-one overlap because there are a lot of technical fields which provide appropriate background. So, you know, we'll talk a little bit about some of those specific occupations in just a second. We've also been seeing um, the level one RFE, and that is. Um where the government has been questioning if the by being an entry level job that requires um, you know just either a degree or very minimal experience um, that it requires um, that how that job is actually a specialty occupation um, it's sort of a catch twenty two in some ways they were saying that if you're a level one job if you're an entry level position then that does not actually justify that a bachelor's degree in a specific field would be required to raise it to the level of a specialty occupation um, however we've you know had some successful cases and we've seen good um, decisions out of the um, out of the administrative appeals office that where they say you know Every job can be an entry-level job, even if it's a specialty occupation. You know, doctors can be entry-level, accountants can be entry-level, lawyers can be entry-level, and those all clearly require the degree. So so that's been, um, I think, an issue that they tried to get through in 2017, and I'm hoping to see that kind of die back down in 2018. I think it's important to understand, though, why they're asking about those questions. The Previously, the Immigration Service always took the position that it was the Department of Labor's responsibility to police whether or not employers were making appropriate representations about the level of skill and the prevailing wages, the the competitive salary that was being offered to the H-1B. The Immigration Service has uh, now kind of arrogated to itself the power and authority to make decisions for the Department of Labor that an employer has provided an appropriate LCA. So they've taken what is uh, perhaps not controversial, which is to say they have to make sure that the labor condition application relates to the same job that's being described in the petition. Um, So, for example, if you had a a labor condition application for a nurse and you described a job as a computer programmer, uh, there would be a mismatch there, and and clearly that case would have a problem. But they've gone much further than that to say that they have the authority to question whether the level of wage is right, whether the classification of the job is appropriate, uh, and a lot of things which up to now were really left to the enforcement authority of the Department of Labor. Yeah. And then another issue we've been seeing is um, the USCIS asking about the beneficiary's qualifications. So that's actually them specifically asking, how does the degree that this person have tie into the job they have? Um, and, you know, Bill touched on that a, a few minutes ago. But what, you know, you have to kind of show is that there's a nexus between the degree and what they're going to be doing. So then we look at coursework and transcripts and the, the degree program to show how the beneficiary is qualified. And in jobs like, you know, computer engineering and such, where there's multiple degrees that that would fit, that's where it gets, um, that's where you kind of see those questions. How would a computer science degree and and a network engineering degree, an electronics engineering degree, and all these different kinds of degrees still prepare the person to do the job? And if you read the business press, you know that analytics and big data are the new 
uh, hot fields. And of course, the educational preparation for these kinds of jobs uh, hasn't caught up uh, with the existence of the job. So people are going into these analytical occupations with a lot of different backgrounds that prepare them for them. Uh, You might have someone hired as a financial analyst who has an engineering background because the engineering involves the same kind of advanced statistical analysis that has to be done on a big data kind of case. But the immigration service is saying, well, wait a minute, if an engineering degree prepares you to do this kind of analytics, as does an economics degree, that's a problem in defining this as a specialty occupation because it isn't a specific field that, uh, that the person has to have a degree in. We've been answering that by pointing out that there are specific knowledge bases of advanced statistical analysis, of using uh, computer tools to perform that analysis that are common across a number of disciplines, but that really the professional degree should be in a specific field of advanced data analytics. It's just that very few uh, colleges offer that course yet, or they've only begun to offer it and there are very few graduates of those courses yet. And so employers look to other backgrounds which provide comparable levels of specialty knowledge in that field. Now, with your experience, are you seeing a certain job category in particular that are having these issues more than others? Uh, Along with the data uh, analytics uh, heavy field, so financial uh, analysts, for example, uh, uh, we also have seen for many years that positions in marketing are uh, often questioned. The reason is that the job category of market research analyst is fairly broad. It encompasses both uh, people who have a background in marketing and who may do more relationship-based marketing or who may be uh, actually implementing surveys, for example, uh, and it lumps those folks together with people who have uh, uh, an analytical background. So very often what we're seeing is the position requirement is for a very heavy analytical background in the marketing field, but the immigration service is questioning why an analytical degree is necessary uh, when so many people in the marketing field don't necessarily have a degree specifically in marketing. Uh, The other area I think that is really difficult is uh, jobs that involve systems uh, analysis uh, and jobs that involve computer programming. Uh, That comprises more than 60% of H-1B jobs that are filed each year. And Uh, That means that uh, it's one of the areas where the Immigration Service, I think, feels uh, the the opportunity to have an impact. Uh, They are asking questions that I haven't seen asked since the early 1990s about how an engineer can be a computer programmer uh, or how someone with uh, perhaps an engineering degree who has uh, 10 or more years of experience in computer programming is qualified for a specialty occupation. So again, what we've tried to do in those uh, cases is we've tried to focus on the kinds of knowledge and understanding that you gain during a computer science degree and point out how uh, an engineering background provides comparable skill sets. Uh, We've also taken in some cases where there is a big mismatch of the degree but the person has experience of really emphasizing the fact that the experience gives the person uh, the equivalent of a bachelor's degree in computer science, uh, uh, but from the school of hard knocks. Now, for a lot of these positions, students have been receiving practical training while they're still at the university level. Now, it is my understanding that USCIS has also focused on these recent graduates and students who were working pursuant to practical training 
and there were questions regarding whether these foreign nationals were properly maintaining their student status as well as whether their U.S. universities had correctly granted their practical training. Can you please expand on this subject and provide your opinion on whether you believe USS will continue to scrutinize recent U.S. graduates? I absolutely think that uh, USCIS will continue its scrutiny of recent graduates on both optional practical training and particularly on curricular practical training. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for this scrutiny. The first reason for this scrutiny is that there are folks uh, within the anti-immigration movement who focused on practical training uh, as a key link uh, between uh, people who come on foreign student visas and the ability of uh, foreign students to access the U.S. labor market. They would like that program severely restricted and uh, people who have similar sympathies within USCIS are using this uh, to question it. The second thing that I think we have to acknowledge is that there have been schools that abused the granting of curricular practical training particularly, um, and there have been several indictments of the owners of no-show programs, which really seem to exist only to provide practical training authorization to their students. Therefore, I think we have to make sure that any student on practical training does have academically valid programs that they're also participating in, that those programs are on-site and consistent. Um, the other thing to remember is that the optional practical pro training program for the STEM students, the, the science and technology students, does require a training plan that has to be filed with uh, uh, ICE, uh, and it isn't filed with USCIS, but I, I, I anticipate that USCIS will be asking for copies of those training plans and will want some evidence that, in fact, the work that the person's done during practical training has been to develop their career further uh, and has not merely been, uh, you know, uh, uh, work for the sake of work. Now, do we anticipate all of these trends continuing with 2018 CAP filings? or do you anticipate some of these trends fading out and new ones arising? Yeah, so I do think the level one RFE is going to fade out, hopefully. Um, I think, you know, the government gave it a good shot, and um, they've seen that employers are are figuring out the wage level properly and that, you know, the entry level does not um, negate the need for a specialty occupation. Um, I think we're still going to be getting hit on the specialty occupation questions, the, the um, student visa questions to make sure they're actually, you know, participating in the proper programs and maintaining their status validly. Um, and I do think there will probably be some new issues coming along the pike, um, but we just have to wait and see what those are going to be. Yeah, the, there are rumors of troubling immigration rules on the horizon, and some are already in the rulemaking process. Can you Do you have any advice on these new rules or any knowledge that you can provide? Yeah, so one rule that we um, anticipate coming down will be a removal of the H-4 employment authorization regulation. So that's a rule that came into effect under the Obama administration that spouses of H-1Bs can work if the H-1B beneficiary is far enough along in the green card process. Um, and I do anticipate that, that that's going to go away. Um, I can't say when. Um, you know, they were saying the rule would be proposed by the end of the year, but they are a bit behind on their rulemaking procedures. Um, so I would anticipate that coming down sometime in 2019. Um, so to keep an eye out for that. 
the Department of Homeland Security has also proposed rulemaking uh, in a couple of areas of the H-1B. They've indicated that uh, they will take on a regulatory change in the definition of what makes a specialty occupation. That may very well change the current uh, four-factor analysis uh, into something that much more restrictively defines specialty occupation. Uh, so do uh, be on the lookout for that coming down. Another one in the H-1B area that particularly affects uh, technology workers in the uh, computer field is going to be uh, a statutory, regulatory definition, rather, of the employer and employee relationship. That may try to tighten up the definition of employer-employee relationship in such a way that uh, consulting companies and staff augmentation companies are not as easily able to use the H-1B program. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, we do anticipate changes to the F1 um, program as well as the M1, which is for students of vocational training. Um, those programs, I anticipate just um, higher scrutiny and oversight by uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, including um, review of the optional practical training program. Um, you know, right now with the STEM training, they have to go through um, presenting a training plan and documenting that. And I think we're going to see that trickle down to even the optional tr practical training levels as well. Yeah, I think the other thing that will change uh, it will be in the EB-5 program. That program may change by statute uh, or will almost certainly change by regulation. We would anticipate some of those changes being uh, to raise the required investment amount. Right now it's a minimum of a half a million dollars. We expect that that might rise as high as 800000 or even a million dollars as the minimum investment amount. We also think they'll make certain programmatic changes that will disadvantage investments in urban areas uh, and try to direct more of the investment to rural areas. Well, there's never a shortage of things to talk about in U.S. immigration these days. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or listen online at classicallaw.com to parts two and three of our H-1B series. Next, we will focus on key concerns for H-1B employers. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.